Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 171 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. During this episode, we will continue reading through The 39 Steps by John Buchan. Our man Hane, a fugitive at large now, has fled by train and is now in the Scottish countryside. So let's listen in to his thoughts as he decompresses and plans his next moves in Chapter 3, The Adventure of the Literary Innkeeper, Part 1. I had a solemn time traveling north that day. It was fine May weather, with the hawthorn flowering on every hedge, and I asked myself why, when I was still a free man, I had stayed on in London and not got the good of this heavenly country. I didn't dare face the restaurant car, but I got a luncheon basket at Leeds and shared it with the fat woman. Also, I got the morning's papers with news about starters for the derby and the beginning of the cricket season, and some paragraphs about how Balkan affairs were settling down and a British squadron was going to Kiel. When I had done with them, I got out Scudder's little black pocketbook and studied it. It was pretty well filled with jottings, chiefly figures, though now and then a name was printed in. For example, I found the words Hofgard, Luneville, and Avocado pretty often, and especially the word Pavia. Now, I was certain that Scudder never did anything without a reason, and I was pretty sure that there was a cipher in all this. That is a subject which has always interested me, and I did a bit of it myself once, as an intelligence officer at Delagoa Bay, during the Boer War. I have a head for things, like chess and puzzles, and I used to reckon myself pretty good at finding out ciphers. This one looked like the numerical kind, where sets of figures correspond to the letters of the alphabet, but any fairly shrewd man can find the clue to that sort after an hour or two's work and I didn't think Scudder would have been content with anything so easy. So, I fastened on the printed words, for you can make a pretty good numerical cipher if you have a keyword which gives you the sequence of the letters. I tried for hours, but none of the words answered. Then, I fell asleep and woke at Dumfries, just in time to bundle out and get into the slow Galloway train. There was a man on the platform whose looks I didn't like, but he never glanced at me, and when I caught sight of myself in the mirror of an automatic machine, I didn't wonder. With my brown face, my old tweeds, and my slouch, I was the very model of one of the hill farmers who were crowding into the third-class carriages. I travelled with half a dozen in an atmosphere of shag-and-clay pipes, they had come from the weekly market, and their mouths were full of prices. I heard accounts of how the lambing had gone up the cairn in the Deutsch and a dozen other mysterious waters. Above, half the men had lunched heavily and were highly flavored with whiskey, so they took no notice of me. We rumbled slowly into a land of little wooded glens, and then to a great wide moorland place, gleaming with locks with high blue hills showing northwards. About five o'clock, the carriage had emptied, 
and I was left alone, as I hoped. I got out at the next station, a little place whose name I scarcely noted, set right in the heart of a bog. It reminded me of one of those forgotten little stations in the Karoo. An old station master was digging in his garden, and with his spade over his shoulder, sauntered to the train, took charge of a parcel, and went back to his potatoes. A child of ten received my ticket, and I emerged on a white road that straggled over the brown moor. It was a gorgeous spring evening, with every hill showing as clear as a cut amethyst. The air had the queer, rooty smell of bogs, but it was as fresh as mid-ocean, and it had the strangest effect on my spirits. I, I actually felt light-hearted. I might have been a boy, out for a spring holiday tramp, instead of a man of thirty-seven, very much wanted by the police. I felt just as I used to feel when I was starting for a big trek on a frosty morning on the high veld. If you believe me, I swung along that road whistling. There was no plan of campaign in my head, only just to go on and on in this blessed, honest-smelling hill country. For every mile, put me in better humor with myself. In a roadside planting, I cut a walking stick of hazel and presently struck off the highway up a bypath which followed the glen of a brawling stream. I reckoned that I was still far ahead of any pursuit, and for that night might please myself. It was some hours since I had tasted food, and I was getting very hungry, when I came to a herd's cottage set in a nook beside a waterfall. A brown-faced woman was standing by the door and greeted me with the kindly shyness of moorland places. When I asked for a night's lodging, she said I was welcome to the bedded in the loft, and very soon she set before me a hearty meal of ham and eggs, scones, and thick sweet milk. At the darkening, her man came in from the hills, a lean giant who in one step covered as much ground as three paces of ordinary mortals. They asked me no questions, for they had the perfect breeding of all dwellers in the wilds but I could see they set me down as a kind of dealer, and I took some trouble to confirm their view. I spoke a lot about cattle, of which my host knew little, and I picked up from him a good deal about the local Galloway markets, which I tucked away in my memory for future use. At ten, I was nodding in my chair, and the bed in the loft received a weary man who never opened his eyes, till five o'clock, set the little homestead a-going once more. They refused any payment, and by six I had breakfasted, and was striding southwards again. My notion was to return to the railway line a station or two farther on than the place where I had alighted yesterday, and to double back. I reckoned that that was the safest way, for the police would naturally assume that I was always making farther from London in the direction of some western port. I thought I had a still a good bit of a start, for as I reasoned, it would take some hours to fix the blame on me, and several more to identify the fellow who got on board the train at St. Pancras. It was the same jolly, clear spring weather, 
and I simply could not contrive to feel careworn. Indeed, I was in better spirits than I had been for months. Over a long ridge of moorland, I took my road, skirting the side of a high hill, which the herd had called Carnsmore of Fleet. Nesting curlews and plovers were crying everywhere, and the links of green pasture by the streams were dotted with young lambs. All the slackness of the past months was slipping from my bones, and I stepped out like a four-year-old. By and by, I came to a swell of moorland, which dipped to the vale of a little river, and a mile away in the heather, I saw the smoke of a train. The station, when I reached it, proved to be ideal for my purpose. The moor surged up around it and left room only for the single line. The slender siding, a waiting room, an office, the stationmaster's cottage, and a tiny yard of gooseberries and sweet william. There seemed no road to it from anywhere, and to increase the desolation, the waves of a tarn lapped on their grey granite beach half a mile away. I waited in the deep heather till I saw the smoke of an east-going train on the horizon. Then I approached the tiny booking office and took a ticket for Dumfries. The only occupants of the carriage were an old shepherd and his dog, a wall-eyed brute that I mistrusted. The man was asleep, and on the cushions beside him was that morning's Scotsman. Eagerly I seized on it, for I fancied it would tell me something. There were two columns about the Portland Place murder, as it was called. My man Paddock had given the alarm and had the milkman arrested. Poor devil, it looked as if the latter had earned his sovereign hardly, but for me he had been cheap at the price for he seemed to have occupied the police for the better part of the day. In the latest news, I found a further installment of the story. The milkman had been released, I read, and the true criminal, about whose identity the police were reticent, was believed to have got away from London by one of the northern lines. There was a short note about me as the owner of the flat. I guessed the police had stuck that in as a clumsy contrivance, to persuade me that I was unsuspected. There was nothing else in the paper, nothing about foreign politics or Carolides or the things that had interested Scudder. I laid it down and found that we were approaching the station at which I had got out yesterday. The potato-digging stationmaster had been gingered up into some activity, for the west-going train was waiting to let us pass, and from it had descended three men who were asking him questions. I supposed they were the local police, who had been stirred up by Scotland Yard, and had traced me as far as this one-horse siding. Sitting well back in the shadow, I watched them carefully. One of them had a book, and took down notes. The old potato digger seemed to have turned peevish, but the child who had collected my ticket was talking volubly. All the party looked out across the moor, where the white road departed. I hoped they were going to take up my tracks there. As we moved away from that station, my companion woke up. He fixed me with a wandering glance, kicked his dog viciously, and inquired where he was. Clearly, he was very drunk.
That's what comes of being a teetotaller, he observed in a bitter regret. I expressed my surprise that in him I should have met a blue-ribbon stalwart. Aye, but I'm a strong teetotaller, he said pugnaciously. I took the pledge last Martin, miss, and haven't touched a drop of whiskey since in, not even at Hogamony, though I was sore tempted. He swung his heels up on the seat and burrowed a frowsy head into the cushions. And that's all I get, he moaned. A head better than hellfire, and twin looking different ways for the Sabbath. What did it? I asked. A drink they uh, brandy. Being a teetotaller, I keep it off the whiskey, but I was nip nipping a day at this brandy. And I doubt it'll no be will for a fortnight. His voice died away into a splutter, and sleep once more laid its heavy hand on him. My plan had been to get out at some station down the line, but the train suddenly gave me a better chance, for it came to a standstill at the end of a culvert which spanned a brawling porter-colored river. I looked out and saw that every carriage window was closed, and no human figure appeared in the landscape. So I opened the door and dropped quickly into the tangle of hazels which edged the line. It would have been all right but for that infernal dog. Under the impression that I was decamping with its master's belongings, it started to bark and all but got me by the trousers. This woke up the herd, who stood bawling at the carriage door in the belief that I had committed suicide. I crawled through the thicket, reached the edge of the stream, and in cover of the bushes put a hundred yards or so behind me. Then from my shelter I peered back and saw the guard and several passengers gathered round the open carriage door and staring in my direction. I could not have made a more public departure if I had left with a bugler and a brass band. Happily, the drunken herd provided a diversion. He and his dog which was attached by a rope to his waist, suddenly cascaded out of the carriage, landed on their heads on the track, and rolled some way down the bank toward the water. In the rescue which followed, the dog bit somebody, for I could hear the sound of hard swearing. Presently, they had forgotten me, and when after a quarter of a mile's crawl, I ventured to look back, the train had started again and was vanishing in the cutting. End of The Adventure of the Literary Innkeeper Part 1 It is quite fascinating to chronicle the responses people have when they're under immense stress and pressure from danger to their life. Uh, you know, they often make really irrational responses or have really irrational thoughts comparatively to the severity of the situation that they're in. And for Hannay, he made a very profound realization, I think. Yes, irrational, but a very good practical application for us too. As he's roaming the Scottish countryside, he reflects and says, I cannot believe that when I was a free man, able to go wherever I pleased, looking for adventure, seeking to rid myself of this dull life, I did not decide to just 
immerse myself in nature for a week or two because he says he felt like a four-year-old kid taking in the the smells and the sights and just the peace and quiet that he can experience in this countryside. He gets spoiled by some random farm couple. He gets basically the benefits of a bed and breakfast without having to pay for it. Free lodging, free meals, and nobody's trying to start a conversation with him. Like, this is an introvert's dream. You know, he can just eat a meal in peace. Nobody's asking questions. He can just, you know, enjoy his, his time munching on whatever people eat in Scotland. I think that there are often a number of factors in our lives, excuses that we make, that contribute to us neglecting the necessary habit of taking time to rest from the societal pressures that exist here in America with this time-crunching production ethic is a phrase that I've read before, where um, you have all of this pressure placed upon you. However, this is a very necessary and rehabilitating act for us to engage in. Don't wait to be fleeing as a fugitive from the police, from a murder that you did not commit, and instead enjoy a good vacation. Just take this time now to, you know, plan that one out. I think it would be very helpful for you and for your mental health and well-being. So very, very good, you know, wholesome application we can take. Another really good thing is if you're trying to get out of a jam and you are indeed in a position where you're trying to evade the police, make friends with a drunkard because uh, we had here a guy who claims he's a uh, sober man uh, and has sought to abstain from alcohol his entire life and yet somehow gets duped by a drink of brandy. I don't know about you, but every amount of alcohol that I've ever tasted, be it beer, wine, champagne, or whiskey, all have that alcoholic-y flavor to them. Like, you can just tell that it that is alcohol. I think after his first few quote-unquote nips of brandy, probably would have tipped him off to the fact that, hey, this kind of tastes like alcohol, maybe a sniff, this kind of smells like alcohol. One would assume that he would have made the next logical jump. I think this is alcohol. But instead, he's like, ah, it tasted so good. I just decided to keep on drinking it. And it was it was an error. And he ends up bringing his dog into the equation. Poor animal. You know, he should have been taking better care of this thing. And they both tumble off of the train at a random stop and fall into a river. And that, of course, is the time gap that Hane needs to complete his escapade from the police hot on his tail, masked by the odor of a drunk man and his dog. So, um, very good life tips, and I think this was a very wholesome section of this chapter. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence 
for other life tips, tune in next week as we continue reading The Pilgrim's Progress, Section 5. And uh, as 39 Steps has become a good, you know, life tip primer for um, daily living. So thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, as they say in showbiz, for now, that's all he wrote.